Welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program providing a gender analysis of contemporary issues from Australia and internationally. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's program, Women on the Line looks at campaigns and strategies for the prevention of violence against women. Gender Equity Victoria held a conference on this issue in June 2019. On today's program, Ray Alfonso from Flat Out discusses the challenges facing workers in the prevention of violence against women, the PVOR industry, with specific reference to the criminal justice system. After that, I'll broadcast the Q&A panel, and the panel discussion was policing and the justice system and preventing violence against women. It was facilitated by Alicia Fuchs from Casa House. But first up, Ray Alfonso. Um, my name's Ray Alfonso. I work for Flat Out, um, statewide homelessness service nurse. As I don't usually, I have a history of working in the PVOR space, but I ha- I'm not in a role like that right now. But I'm very, very interested in the way that interpersonal experiences of violence and experiences of state and structural violence are inherently in- interconnected. And that's been really beautifully tabled today by the panels and speakers that we've already had. And I look forward to drilling down into that in the workshops later in the day. Um, So as other speakers have alluded to, Victoria's women's prison population is rapidly expanding um, and the overwhelming majority of incarcerated women are victims of family violence in childhood and adult life. So Corrections puts that at somewhere around 70% but all peak peer-led organisations including Sisters Inside put that at 100%. Um, So we might say that whilst not all women who experience violence are criminalised, all criminalised women experience some form of family violence. Um, I like dazzle tactics when it comes to data. Some of you might have seen these before. I'll just go through them quickly because I hope that none of this will be a surprise to anybody in the room. But this is the, a graph depicting the number of, um, the increase in the women's prison population. So between 2008 and 2018. So 137.8% and I believe that's actually increased since this survey was done. And then importantly, 406% for Aboriginal women. in the last 10 years, largely due, which I'm sure Loz will drill down into, to the increase in bail laws and the tough on crime approach that our government has taken. So who are these laws keeping our communities safer from? These are some, I love a good uh, pie chart. Um, You don't have to necessarily absorb the numbers, but I think it's an interesting visual juxtaposition. So here we have the differences, the disparity in statistics for non-criminalised women and criminalised women in their experience of homelessness. And we know that um, for women leaving prison, even if they are then, you know, ticked and flicked as having been released into secure housing, that housing tends to break down between six and 12 weeks. So here we have non-criminalised women and then criminalised women experiencing 44% of insecure housing. Experiences of poor mental health or distress, 13.5% versus 63%. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to understand how this might actually be underreporting. Most of these surveys are done by corrections and there are many, many reasons why women would choose not to disclose mental distress to corrections, including fear of that impacting, say, their right to have access to their children or their ability to engage other services. Experiences of misusing alcohol and other drugs, so that's 9% versus 17%, uh, sorry, versus 
and then experiences of family violence. And again, this is taken from corrections, so I put a median and put 90%, but all the peer organisations would say 100%. So we're all familiar with the 23%, about a quarter of women experiencing interpersonal violence, and then 90% for criminalised women. So I'll just go back over those, because I think that, you know, that is a really stark visual juxtaposition for who it is that we're talking about and who it is that we are supposedly being kept safe from. So what does this mean for PVOR work? And I've included the socio-ecological model from our watch because this is, of course, the framework that we're currently using to underpin a lot of PVOR work. And basically, well, that's a, you know, a looking at the structures, norms and practices that impact on individual, interpersonal, organisational, community and societal prevention of violence or the, the gender drivers that contribute to um, violence against women. Um, and what does that mean in terms of our practice? So I've drawn some correlations between key themes that I've identified in the early stages of my project, which has been going since January. So something that a lot of women, a common thing, a common theme is misidentification as the primary aggressor, which obviously comes down a lot harder on women. The more structural disadvantage a woman faces, the more likely she is to be misidentified as a primary aggressor. And we're talking about things as, you know, the cross orders being served on the same day. You know, I worked with a client in my previous role who was served with a cross order while she was unconscious in the back of an ambulance on the same day. Like, it really is this ludicrous. And perpetrators using the system as a highly effective form of power and control. And this correlates with the controlled decision making which we understand as one of the foundational gender drivers of violence. And I think that this is really important for our work because I've never met people who are more well-versed in how to leverage the system against a woman than a perpetrator of violence. And do we, as PVOL workers and women engage, you know, people engaged in work in this space, wanting to increase safety for women and children in this state, do we want to be colluding in a system that is daily impacting, having a profound impact on the level of interpersonal harm that women are facing in their homes? And then the impact of criminalisation on a woman's ability to seek support from family violence services. As Tarnine touched on, having a criminalised history, coming from a criminalised family, having a violent crime on your record, for example, if you have been served with an abusive cross order, that then impacts your ability to enter refuge, to enter supported accommodation, to go into a group program, to access transitional housing. And then historical and cultural trauma compounded by ongoing experiences of stigma and discrimination. So that is the overtime, that drip, drip, drip effect of a lifetime of ne negative experiences of engaging with police, of engaging with child protection, of engaging with the courts that are going to prevent those systems from ever being therapeutic or protective for an individual woman. And again, what does that mean for us and for our practice? And what that means, I think the part of the rollout is, you know, self-exclusion and disengagement is a key protective strategy. When, we're, when our work is inherently based on compliance, on women being able to meet our requirements for accessing service, when they are self-excluding and disengaging as a smart and reasonable and sane response to historical and cultural experiences of discrimination, then it is not they who are falling short, it is us and our services. Poor literacy and collaboration between the service system and the justice system creates specific barriers for criminalised women. I can't tell you the number of times that I've sat in a courtroom and have a magistrate say that a woman can access bail for some minor crime and be located in the community with her family where she belongs if she accesses a cognitive, a cognitive assessment or goes to detox in the next four weeks. And I sit there and I look at this guy and I'm like, well, she would really like that and I would really like that, but where is that going to come from and who the hell is going to pay for it? 
And then gendered understandings of violence, this idea of the ideal victim versus the bad woman or the bad mother, and the impact of that individually on an internalised stigma level that again reinforces that self-exclusion from accessing services, down to how these women are assessed, you know, they're non-compliant, they're difficult to engage. I understand deeply, I've got 15 years in case management behind me, and I understand the allure of the too hard basket that is very much built on this idea of the good woman and the good mother and and the right victim, but we must resist this in our work. Linking women's experience of interpersonal and state violence, and what does this mean for my practice? And I'm about halfway, right? So that was my dazzle tactics presentation, but basically where I want to tie it into a bow for you is that you know prevention of violence work is about increasing safety. And in a capitalist context, and just a sidebar, I am so stoked to be at an event where within five minutes somebody said smash the state. Thank you, great, fantastic, <laughs> need to hear that more. But in the capitalist context, safety be is reduced to comfort. And safety is a loading zone, it's not a highway. Change work, mobilising, being on the front line is incredibly uncomfortable and it requires all of us to give up comfort and safety in order to create more space so that Indigenous women can collectivise and heal. Right now in this state, there are hundreds of women who, if mobilised and given the space and the resources and the support to be on the front line, would be some of our most outspoken and, you know, and still are finding ways to be some of our most outspoken and important activists. The voices of women in prison, the voices of women on the pointy end of structural disadvantage, those are political prisoners. And we need to stop pretending that we don't have those in this country. Um, you know, often at the moment, we, well, all the time in the moment, we talk about intersectionality. We talk about understanding prevention of violence work, about understanding our, our gender-based violence work, our response work from an intersectional lens. And I just want to stress that if our work is anything ex ex explicitly anti-racist, then that is a misappropriation of the history of intersectionality. Intersectionality is not a substitute buzzword for diversity. We don't pick out gender and class and race and put them in different boxes. Um, gender, yes, gender drivers of violence, but gender is just as indivisible from a person's experience of violence as any other axis along which we accord power. Race, ability, class. And if we don't acknowledge that, then it's like picking apart and discussing the cart before we've even looked at the horse or the road or where it is that we are going. Um, you know, not to belabor or beat everybody about the head. In a nutshell, trans and gender diverse women are our core work. Indigenous women in prison are our core work. Women living with disabilities are our core work. Women using substances are our, are our core work. Women who are homeless and insecurely housed are our core work. They are not a collective on the side. They are not a special interest group. Intersectional, truly, uh, true, true work to unpack people, it starts from the pointy end and it works backwards. If we are working to dignify and uplift the voices of black women in prison, then there is no way that we can't provide more transformative and empowering support for everybody. But it requires us to embrace being uncomfortable. We can't talk about migrant women without talking about borders. We can't talk about liberation without talking about prisons. We can't talk about class with talking about capitalism. So we are under contract. We've been offered and we've accepted Womanjeka. That means that we have to pay the rent. That means that we have to be uncomfortable. That means that we have to stand in solidarity. Not within the system, but around, despite and against. Protest and disrupt the carceral state. Consider the fact that many women who have significant cause to disrupt are currently incarcerated. Political prisoners, liberate their voices, stand for all. Thank you.
And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You just heard Ray Alfonso from Flood Out talk about some of the statistics of criminalised women and the issue of preventing violence against women. Coming up now, the Q&A panel, policing and the injustice systems and preventing violence against women. Facilitated by Alicia Fuchs from Casa House. Throughout this panel, you'll hear the voices of Ray Alfonso, Lauren Caulfield from Flemington Kensington Legal Service and Tarnine Onus-Williams from the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Um, we had a question for Tarnine um, because I, I don't work in sort of have anything to do with the legal sector at all, but something that you were saying about the difference between crime and harm made me think that that was a really interesting idea that I would appreciate if you could sort of speak some more about that. I, I think that, like, when we say that it's a crime, we're depending on the police and the prisons and the court systems to deal with the violence that is occurring in, um, in families or in, in relationships. And I think what we need to focus on is actually reducing harm and not actually leaving it for the police and court to deal with. We need to look outside of the usual, um, t- the usual ways of dealing with violence and not rely on the state because the state is inherently violent and that's what I'm kind of talking about and I think as well when you're talking about harm it's actually um, we're talking about the the things that happen interpersonally um, within relationships Um, and I think that yeah that's kind of what I meant by the difference between harm and crime. Um, I think yeah uh, the difference between Crime and harm is something I think about a lot and I think it's very useful in any space, you know, especially in the people space because we're talking about the magnitude of harm, the lethality of harm, the level of community harm as well that happens when an individual woman experiences a high level of structural oppression. For example, with those statistics that you saw earlier about the increase in women in prison, almost half of those women are there on remand. So the change in bail laws has created a bottleneck in the system where there are women who are currently incarcerated awaiting sentencing. Many of them would never be sentenced to prison time when it does come time for their matter to be heard. But in the meantime, they're in prison long enough to lose their job, to lose their home, to lose their children, to be branded a criminal, to undergo that internal and external stigma and discrimination, potentially lose ties to their community. And if we're talking about, again, the prevention of men's collusion and a normalisation of their violence against women, if one of the only places she can expect to have her level of systemic discrimination understood and validated and affirmed is the perpetrator, then that creates a very, very dangerous us and them dichotomy that is absolutely a weaponization of the system that we as PIVO workers have the capacity to intervene in and avoid and take an explicit stance against in our work. Uh, firstly, I wanted to thank you all. I mean, I thought they were all very, very powerful and incredible um, discussions that you raised. Um, this, my question is for everybody on the panel um, and it, it relates to kind of what we were talking about at the start and then what you each touched on as well, which is the inherent violence of the system, the inherent violence of the institution of police um, and then kind of again linking to what Lydia and Carla and others said at the start, which is the system does what it's designed to do. So in that context, right, 
how do we hold that and this idea of police accountability? What does police accountability mean when we're talking about a system that is inherently violent? I mean, it's a phenomenal question. And I think often when we're having those conversations, we're necessarily in the dual terrain, right, of a of kind of response and the situation that we're in now and the alternatives and what we imagine and are investing in building for the future. And so I think when we consider police accountability, I certainly consider that to be a kind of short-term stopgap while we do the work that we need to build the responses that we need that exist outside the prison industrial complex. I don't presume that they exist already. I think that one particular, <clears throat> you know, excellent way of thinking about, I think when we're thinking about responses to family violence and responses to harm, often we can feel quite crippled by like what we can do. And so one of the things we've done historically is to sort of outsource it to police and prisons and services as if it's the work of outside experts when it's not. And that's something that the people sector really gets is that it's fundamentally our business. But when we think about those responses to crisis moments or types of harm, we're often thinking in a really immediate sense as opposed to thinking, well, if we knew that an incidence of harm was going to occur in our community or in a relationship in three three to five years, what would we need to do to be able to create the conditions to respond to that harm? And I think that's the kind of movement work and the conversation that needs to happen in parallel with considering what we do right now to minimise harm um, for people who are experiencing violence. You know, and police accountability at the moment kind of sits in that. And I think we're trying to do that in a number of ways, kind of individually responding to particular instances of, of harm, so state harm against survivors, but also at a kind of systemic level, having, you know, mounting strategic litigation to mount the argument that police should owe a duty of care to survivors in family violence situations, which is something that Andrew's government argues that they shouldn't. <laughs> but I think that's what we're doing, is we're doing that work in tandem, the work of, of holding the current situation and then, and then building alternatives. I think as well the only possible way to do it is solidarity. You know, I really resonated with what you said about there being no ethical job. You know, we are, there is no outside the system, we are all in some ways working within it. And in many of us in our, you know, in our careers have come to the system from a place of its history, which was, you know, the whole family violence system positioned itself as working with women, alongside women, against the system. And then because of the changes in context, in political context, and, you know, the tendering, the competitive tendering for funding, we find ourselves in a position of fighting over crumbs, of fighting against each other, and there is no escaping that. And that, if we are to stay true to our ethics, that causes us real pain. And in order to maintain any kind of fire or vigour or possibility of continuing to work on dismantling the oppressive systems from the outside, we need solidarity. And we need to step in that to do that discomfort and let go of this. I think we get stuck in this like tyranny of perfection and the search for the perfect ally. There's no such thing. But the cause, if you zoom out far enough, it becomes a cause about anti-capitalism, it becomes a cause about, you know, bring down the prison industrial complex that is so much bigger than ourselves. And yes, big in its overwhelm, but also big in its possibility to unite us and to be a place, a cradle for that solidarity that will enable us to push this work forward whilst we continue to work within the system when disrupted from the inside as well. I was thinking about perhaps, you know, you're thinking bringing forward the stories of the women that you were speaking about, you know, that you work with in your group. What were some of the things that they might actually want to be put forward? Like if you were to kind of bring their voices to the room. I think that um, these women, I th 
they're on like an abolitionist road at the moment mm. and that they honestly just want the world to be better mm. they want to live in a world where there isn't violence and they want to live in a world where people respect each other and we look after each other and you know and i think that in lots of you know um, working class suburbs that happens all the time like as a kid you'd go ask the neighbor for some milk and bread if you had nothing and that just doesn't happen anymore because we're being gentrified out of our neighborhoods and we can't, we can't rely even rely on our neighbors anymore to support us and that in turn prevents violence so i think if the women were to come here that they would say that they you know want that they want you know kids to be able to be kids they want you know them to be able to live in a world without prisons and that's um, what they would want. That was really terrific. Thanks everybody. Um, my name's Neil Minnie. I'm from Wired. I'd like to um, acknowledge that I'm a migrant settler of colour living in Australia. Um, I'm picking up the idea of um, royal commission, which I call royal omission. When you think about follow the money, as Giselle was saying, always follow the money, we think about who made their money on the royal commission. Mm. And classically, it's the way they took over the third world after formal colonisation is by NGOs. And there you have a takeover situation. Now, there's so much investment made into the Royal Commission. Meanwhile, there's no treaty, there's no people getting um, their payments back for stolen generations. So when the state looks like it's doing something good, you need to always look at what else it's doing. But how do we, after such a deep investment into that for the last few years since the Royal Commission, how can we backtrack? How can we move away from that, not be complicit in in that, it's one part of the question. The other one is that not all of us are symmetrically placed in that system and there are a lot of, you can never take over a system without elite and a lot of privilege and rewards being given, money, boards, top jobs, CEO positions. So we, the we here may not be the we that is running those organisations. So for me, like when you're talking about tyranny, there is a tyranny of white domination as well and white elitism that we never get to talk about. Race is always about the people of colour. Actually, race is also about the domination and that we are not all, can't, we can't all be activists in there because some of us just aren't. So I just wondered if you could talk back about, number one, how to roll back from something that I know we're so deeply committed in and signed up to and we've lost the battle already. And the second one is how do we break down the elitism within the organisations? Yeah, that is a bloody huge question. Um, wow. You know, I think it comes back to actually building communities to be able to work in these spaces. And I think that we need to prioritise working with communities on the ground and locally. And I, I think that that is the way that we'll be able to, um, you know, take over um, organisations that will be more successful because it'll be the people who are operating inside those communities, who know those communities, to be able to do that. And that's what's happened in the Aboriginal service sector. Um, I mean, obviously there's still elitism there, but um, at the end of the day, at least, Every, pretty much every CEO of the Aboriginal um, led organisation in the state mostly is Aboriginal, you know? I 
think, yeah, again, it just comes back to solidarity. And I think that there is, we're at an interesting point politically where there's this real focus on integrated service and intersectionality that is seen, you know, mainstream, for want of a better word, larger organisations and primary health networks and so on explicitly asked to draw on the knowledge and the wisdom and the practice frameworks of smaller specialised organisations. And I think that where bigger, for example, PIVOR organisations can come in is advocating, contacting the smaller specialised organisations and peak bodies in their catchments, asking them how they do business, and then standing and buttressing for them and making sure that in doing so they're not co-opted, they're not watered down, they're not lip service, that they are paid, that they are valued, and that the organisations who adopt their frameworks and want to tout about this intersectional integrated service model, you know, what's the use of a larger organisation then partnering with a smaller organisation if the workers in that larger organisation don't remember the last time they had supervision you know hands up anybody so I think this is a real opportunity for um, bigger mainstream organizations to advocate that in the process these very um, integrated community-based um, specialist service models are not watered down and that if bigger organisations want to partner or merge or integrate, then they're the ones who actually need to lift the bar and they need to be accountable and transparent does that make sense I think there's um, good advocacy to be done and bodies that we need on the front line in that space. Otherwise, I fear that that's what will happen and that smaller, smaller organisations will have to kind of barnacle onto bigger ones to survive and in the process lose the work that they've, you know, the practice frameworks that they've worked so hard to develop over such a long time. I think in answer to that question, what I really think about is it being a co like a co-option moment that you're talking about. You know, we're really good as a sector at talking about acts of resistance at the kind of interpersonal level, but thinking about what our collective acts of resistance are to co-option, I reckon, is what we're talking about and what the practices and ethics are of that. And so when I think about it, you know, I kind of go to police, policing because that's where I'm working, but I think then about what it means for us to resist co-option, you know, there's all of this push to build relationships, to co-locate, what that means for the people that we support. But I think one of the practices is truth-telling, where we absolutely tell the truth about the lived experience of policing. We're not influenced by relationships in a way that means that we won't do that. And then also thinking about what criteria we apply to our own work that resists co-option. So I think that's about applying criteria like decastral criteria to the tactics that we use. You know, if work is going to result, if our work is going to result in more people being criminalised, more women being criminalised, don't do it. You know, it's a tactic we won't do. You know, in applying that criteria to all of the work that we do, will it locate power with communities or will it locate more power with police or prisons or the state? You know, if it's the former, then we do it. If it's the latter, then we don't do it. So I think it's also a real moment for our kind of internal clarity in thinking about the ways that we resist that sort of co-option. I think we're coming to a close for this session. Thank you to all three panellists. Thanks to all on that panel and to Gender Equity Victoria for the use of their audio. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Women on the Line. Women on the Line is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR. The show is funded by the Community Radio Foundation and distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can email us at womenontheline at gmail.com. You can also download our podcasts from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to the Women on the Line page where you'll find all of our previous programs. 
Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.